0: Let's get out our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll take verses 8 all the way to the end of the chapter today. To Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 8 to the uh, verse 20, the end of chapter 5. So uh, as always, before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Father, as always, we are thankful again to be in your house, and we are thankful to now open your Word together and to lift our minds and our hearts in worship as we study your Word. And so we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to see and to understand what your Word says. But not only that, that you would also apply it to our hearts and apply it to our souls and embed it into our minds. That it would not just be something that we hear, but it would be something that changes us so that we can be doers of the Word and not just hearers also. So we pray for this blessing over the preaching of your Word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know that the preacher of Ecclesiastes has spoken much about the vanity of things that are under the sun. He has spoken about the vanity of work and the vanity of pleasure and the vanity of all kinds of things. And now after he has talked about uh, giving us rather some advice that we saw last week about how we should order ourselves when we enter into the household of God, he now turns his attention again to the concept of vanity, vanity of things under this world. And so we turn our attention here to this concept of or this this problem that it seems that most people tend to have in a fallen world and out of our fallenness I think this this desire that we have of always wanting more. The the desire of of always wanting more than what we have. The the problem of always looking to tomorrow. There's an old line I know not all of you like Star Wars. But there's an old line in Star Wars when Luke meets Yoda for the first time and, Luke, and Yoda says something to the effect of, Long time have I watched this one. All his life as he looked away to the future and to the horizon and never his mind on where he was and what he was doing. And of course, this is meant as a rebuke to young Luke. And it is a reminder to us as well not to always get preoccupied with tomorrow Jesus tells us not to get anxious about tomorrow because today has its own anxieties of its own and its own problems of its own. But even more than just simply not worrying about the anxieties of tomorrow and being anxious, don't look don't always uh be on the lookout for tomorrow. Don't always yearn for tomorrow. Don't always think that tomorrow will be a brighter day. Focus on the here and the now. And so that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes turns his attention to. And as we work through this all the way to the end, I've titled this message, The Path of Contentment. And we'll learn what the pathway to true contentment is. But in order to do that, we have to talk about a couple of vanities that he notes in his observations of the world. And so the first note of vanity that he sees in the first couple of verses is the vanity of power. The vanity of power. Now, this world is built on systems. That's just a reality. Society is built on systems. Culture is built on systems. The government itself, which, generally speaking, is a God-ordained institution, it is built on a system. School systems, we call them that because they're built on systems. Cities are systems. Even the church, in the broadest, perhaps, definition of the term, is a system system. So the world is built on systems. And those systems, depending on what we're talking about, in the details, they get divided into hierarchies. They get structured into hierarchies of power and hierarchies of authority. And you have those who are at the top and those who are at the bottom and different levels of authority or power or structure in between. Look at our government, for example. One of the... uh, One of the important foresights, if you will, that the forefathers had was to set our government up in three branches such that there is a balancing act between the branches of our government. But within those branches, of course, within those systems that make up the system, there are leaders within the system. Look at schools. I mentioned that. You have teachers, and then they have immediate supervisors, and then they perhaps report directly to principals and principals report to superintendents and superintendents report on up all the way to the state and then of course to the national level. But here's the issue. There's systems that are full of people and the issue isn't always the system. Sometimes the issue is the system. The issue is not always the system but what is always the problem is that they're full of people. They're full of people. And those people are sinners. That's why it's a problem. People are imperfect. Many of them in these systems, many people, believe it or not, this might be a shock to you, serve themselves. And many of them use the system to serve themselves. And so you wind up in situations where sin and evil take these systems and they become terrible examples of injustice and oppression. And that's where the preacher turns his attention to here with the vanity of power. He says in verse 8, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Don't be surprised, he says. Don't be amazed. Don't let it shock you. When you look out at the systems that make up the world, And you see injustice and oppression of the poor. Why, he says, because the high official is watched by a higher and yet there are higher ones over them. In other words, the reason that oppression and injustice shouldn't surprise us is because they are systems and societies. They always set themselves up such that there are lower people and there are higher people. There are those at the bottom and there are those at the top. So we shouldn't be surprised when it's built with sinners that there is, and there will be examples of oppression and examples of injustice within these systems. Don't be surprised. It, it's set up that way. It's just inherent in any system. Now our own culture, our own society, has come to this conclusion as well. But you look out upon the world and you see injustice and you see oppression. So this isn't some... <laughs> Novel observation that the preacher has come to. Even a a fallen world and people within the fallen world with a modicum of sense can tell that there is injustice and oppression. But our culture has come to a solution where what needs to happen is that those who are experiencing the injustice, the, the oppressed, if you will, they need to rise up against the oppressors, to rise up and claim the power for themselves to rise up against the powerful. The weak need to rise up and claim power from the strong. The reason, or this is futility though, it's it's vanity. And the reason that it is futility and vanity is this. Once that happens, guess what else happens? Those who used to be the weak and the oppressed who have now risen and taken the power, now they're the ones in power. And they're fallen and they're sinners and they're imperfect too. And so, what inevitably is going to happen is that they will engage in injustice and oppression of now what is a new lower class and a new oppressed group. And so, the cycle starts itself over again. The oppressed simply become the new oppressor. And so, the preacher's point here is that even power is vanity. Power is vanity because those who have power typically tend to misuse that power. That's true. And it will always be true. But it's also vanity because even those who are being mistreated, if they were to rise to power, they will always wind up somewhere down the line becoming the oppressor themselves. And by the way, when you see those kind of examples, and this is true in history, when you see those examples of the, the oppressed uh, desiring to rise and take power from the strong and take power from the unjust, it's always those who consider themselves on the moral high ground. They, they always think that they are operating within the realm of great and righteousness and greatness and perfection. And so they see themselves as this righteous ruler that's going to take over, and we're the oppressed, but once we can get this thing taken over and get all the oppressors out of the way, we can set up a just society. So there's always this thought of, well, we'll set up a utopia, if you will, and everything will be perfect. And yet for all of the revolutions throughout human history, for all of the uprisings throughout human history, for all of the civil wars and things like that throughout human history, there still has not been yet utopia. Why? Because power ultimately is vanity. But the preacher does have a semi-solution here. He says in verse 9, But this is gain for a land in every way. And here's his statement. A king committed to cultivated fields. This is gain for for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. Now that's a strange thing to say. And honestly, it's a strange verse to translate. And depending on the translation you might be looking at compared to the ESV, you might get a very different impression of what the preacher means here. The way the ESV translates it, this gain for the land in every way when a king is committed to cultivated fields. So the way the ESV translates it, it sounds like the answer to the problem in verse 8, the answer to the problem of oppression and injustice is a good leader. A good king, a king in this sense in the in the analogy, a king committed to cultivated fields, that's what creates uh, uh, wealth in the land. that's what creates gain in the land. and the 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 metaphor is a good king who cares about his people, a good king who will reign righteously and reign uh, with justice. So what society needs in this particular way of translating it is a good and righteous leader. That's what society needs. That will. So, what does it take to be a good and righteous leader? It's the kind of leader who understands this about human nature, and therefore, in his capacity of leadership, will work to keep evil at bay. That's really the purpose of government, according to Scripture, isn't it? To punish evil and to reward good. That's what. It, that's really all it takes to be a good and righteous. Ruler, according to what God would have, a ruler or a king or an emperor or whatever the case might be. That's really all it takes. But then you have other translations of this verse. For example, the NIV and the King James Version is similar as well. So is the ASV, the authorized version. They translate it this way. So, so no, see if we can note the difference from the ESV. So the ESV, this is gain for every land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. But here's the NIV. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, that's a negative way to translate this verse. It's a more negative way to look at the king. The ESV translated in a more positive way. What we need is a good king who wants cultivated fields, and that's gain. But the NIV says the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. In that rendering, the king himself is part of the problem. In that rendering, there's gain in the land, and yet everybody takes it. Everybody clings for it and and goes out and, and, and bilks the land for all that it's worth. And then he adds in the statement, the king himself profits from the field. The king is part of the problem instead of part of the solution if you translate it this way. So like I said, it's a hard verse to translate. And to be honest, it could really be either one when you get to trying to translate it into the English. But what's not hard to realize is that whichever way you take verse 9, whether it's upholding a good and righteous king as the solution of verse 8, or talking about even king's benefit from the reality of verse 8, whether you take it either way, the problem of verse 8 still stands. Because either the king is unrighteous and and, and lives off of the back of the land or the king is generally righteous, but he's still not perfect and he's still going to make mistakes and he's still not going to add up. And so even whether we go with the one way or the other way for verse nine, we're left to realize this. We are pointed forward to anticipate a better kingdom with a better king. A better kingdom with a better king. Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We're being called here to look at oppression and look at injustice and realize how rampant it is and realize that it shouldn't surprise us and it should cause us as the people of God to yearn for and long for the day when righteousness will reign and to remember that ultimately the reason it doesn't surprise us that righteousness doesn't reign under the sun is because we wait for a better kingdom, a righteous kingdom with a better king, a righteous king. A child to be born. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Power is vanity. Except for the one who holds true power. In our hands, power is vanity. In the hands of Christ, power is righteousness and holiness and purposeful. And He will establish that kingdom one day. He will do it in His own time. But it is coming. And so we are called to yearn and look forward and anticipate that great day when He will right all wrongs and eradicate all evil and establish His throne forever. Vanity is power. I mean, uh, vanity is, uh, power is vanity rather. Power is vanity. So, from the vanity of power now, what does he have to say next? Well, now he turns his attention to one of our favorite topics perhaps the the topic of money, the topic of possessions, the topic of what we have. Now he turns his attention to the vanity of money. Power is vanity. And money is vanity. Possessions are vanity. And when you really take a step back and you want to kind of maybe summarize what the problem of the world is, those are the two bottom line problems of the world. Those are the two bottom line problems of the human heart. Either we want more power over others or we want more money over others or we want both over others. But really it has to do with with influence or affluence, with power or money. We either want more power or we want more money. And he says even vanity, even money is vanity, the vanity of money. He says in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now you don't even know the need to know the original language to get exactly what he's saying here. You don't need Greek or Hebrew. Those who love money will never be satisfied with money. But consider how he says this, because he says it in a very particular way. He doesn't say those who have money will never be satisfied with it. He says those who love money will never be satisfied with it. And you can love money whether you ever have a penny or not. You can love money and have a zero on your bank account when you pull it up on the internet. The point that the preacher is making is that loving money is a bottomless pit of unfulfillment and disappointment. That's the point that he's making. And you will experience, we will experience that kind of disappointment if we love money. Simply by loving it, and yearning for it, and desiring it, it will ultimately leave us unfulfilled and disappointed. You will always want more. It won't matter how much you accumulate, it will not be enough. It won't matter how little you accumulate, it will not be enough enough if all you do is love money and want more of it. This is true not just in the realm of money, but in the realm of prosperity in general. This past week, the NFL, the big news was that, or maybe it was last week, or you know the week before, but anyway, the big news was Tom Brady has retired from football after 20-some odd years of playing. But I remember a few years ago they were doing a, one of those pieces on him, and they were interviewing him and all that. And this is a man who has achieved the, the greatest accomplishments of anyone ever in the history of his sport Super Bowl appearances. Super Bowl wins, winning seasons and winning records and MVPs and so forth and so on. He has set a bar now that anyone and everyone, whoever comes along, they will be compared to it, just like they used to be compared to Joe Montana. Now they're going to be compared to the line that Tom Brady has set. And they're doing an interview with him. And they ask him about how happy he was you know, with where his life was. And this is kind of my paraphrase of what he said. But basically, he said, you know, he had climbed the mountaintop, won all these Super Bowls. And now that he could see himself coming to the end of his career at the time, and there's not much left really to attain for. And he kept asking himself the question, is this all there is to life? This is a guy who had prosperity that certainly any of us could never even dream of having money, fame, fortune, accomplishment. He's going to go down in the history. People will talk his name for decades, if not centuries, if football lasts that long. What a sad realization to come to. At the end of 20 years of life and 20 years of pain and really most of his life, when you go back to high school, junior high, and probably even childhood. What a sad realization to come to. This full life, even with a wife and children. And with such success, he comes to the end and he still felt unfulfilled. And still felt a sense of emptiness and disappointment. And so it is with this world. Those who love money, those who love wealth, will never be satisfied with their money. They'll never be satisfied with their wealth. If that's all that you're living for, it will never satisfy you. Because we can always have more. There's always something, think about this, 10th commandment violation, right? If we train our hearts to covet, then there's always something new to covet. If you train your heart to covet, you'll always find something new to covet. So you get that thing, and then you're just going to covet something new. And that's essentially what the preacher is telling us here says in verse 11, now he gets really personal. He says in verse 11, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner to, but to see them with his eyes? And what's he saying? There's a bunch of pronouns here, and it kind of gets a little, you know, hectic with trying to understand what he's saying. So when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So they increase who eat the goods. And what advantage has their owner, the goods owner, but to see the goods with his own eyes? In other words, when you have more than enough, when you have plenty, when you have goods, when you have all that you need and perhaps more, all that tends to wind up happening is that others come along seeking to take it from us. Others come along and want some of it for themselves. And it Look, it could come from good places. As parents, for example, we make money to provide for our children, but we don't get to enjoy all the money that we make as children. I mean, as as parents, our kids get to enjoy some of that. I mean, we've got to feed them and clothe them and provide for them. The more we make it, it seems the more the kids need it. It could come from good places. It could come from bad places like beggars or freeloaders looking to leech on our good fortune or our hard work. You've got plenty. Float me this. You've got plenty. Float me that. They're on the side of the road in Baton Rouge all the time. There's signs that say, please don't give people money on the roads, but they're they're still out there. They're walking up and down, waiting on somebody to slip a dollar, slip a five, whatever the case is. And the kind of stories that you hear you know, these kind of people that, that they are, many of them, they're just freeloaders and leachers and not actually people in that kind of need. The point he's making here is that the more our goods increase, the more there seems to be someone coming around to take it right out from under our nose. Going back to the system problem in verse 8, maybe it's the government Wanted to raise your taxes. You can make more money then you get to pay more taxes. And we'll come take it out of you before you even... Get to see it. Verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I don't know how any of you are, but you put in a good day's work. Typically, you get a good night's sleep. That's what he's saying. Sweet as the sleep of a laborer. You put in a hard day's work, you're tired at night. And you really don't have a lot of time to think about at some point, whether you have little or have much, because you're just tired. You need the rest. Good, honest, hard work leads to restful sleep. But what about the rich? He says, the full stomach of the rich. So we, this isn't just someone with a lot of money. It's someone who consumes his money by way of feasts and parties and gluttony and an all-around relaxing lifestyle. Those kind of people don't sleep well. Why? Because they don't work. They don't do anything but consume their wealth. That's the point that he's making. Proverbs twenty-five sixteen says, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. Eating too much and having a full stomach of the rich gives you a stomachache, essentially. You ever had a bad night's sleep after you ate too much of something, you know you shouldn't eat? It's, uh, it's miserable. I remember this was before we were kids, uh, before we had kids, rather, you know, many, many years ago. And uh, it was actually kind of my last hurrah before we would have Caroline. And and me and my cousin, Greg, we decided, not not Chris, but Greg. This was back when one of the the last Star Wars movie, before they decided to make all what they're making today. It was coming out on DVD. And so we decided... That we were going to get together and we were going to watch all six movies in one day. We were going to marathon this thing. We are going to watch all six of them. And so he came over to the house. We were in an apartment at the time. He came over. We started these movies at 7 o'clock in the morning. We finished at 9 o'clock at night. They're long movies. And we took some breaks and stuff. We finished at 9 o'clock at night. I did nothing all day. But eat pizza and popcorn and chips and all that kind of stuff. Did nothing all day long. And then at night I could not sleep. Why couldn't you sleep? Well, I didn't feel good. But I'd also not really done much of anything throughout the day that my body thought at the end of the day, I kind of need to rest. Instead, it got to 9, 10, 11 o'clock into 1 o'clock in the morning and my body's going, you really kind of need to get up and do something, man. You didn't burn a lot of calories today. You've taken like 50 steps in 12 hours. (laughs) And that's what he's saying here. It is the... Sleep of a laborer that is sweet, but the full stomach of the rich will not sleep. Here's another reason that money is vain, according to the preacher. There's a grievous evil in verse 13 that I have seen under the sun. Uh, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Why is money vain? Well, it's not just vain because it doesn't satisfy, excuse me, satisfy in the previous verses. It's also vain because it's not, to use a big word, immutable. It's not unchangeable. It's also vain because, like in this story, which apparently is a real observation that he made in his observation of the world, one bad investment and you can lose it all. One bad turn of fate, if you will, and you can lose it all. He had lost it all, this man did, to one bad venture. Bought some stock that went belly up, made a bad investment. You might be tempted to say, well, what about those that that doesn't happen to? There's plenty of people who make great investments and they wind up with plenty of money. What about that situation? Well, that's what verse 15 is for. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. And by the way, he keeps calling it a grievous evil. It, it gives him, a, it gives him a, a, a pit in his stomach. Literally, it makes him sick to see this in the world. It's grievous. It makes him nauseous. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. So even if the problem of the bad venture in verses 13 and 14 don't happen to you, the problem of verses 15 to 17 will, because eventually we're all going to die. Now that's an observation he's made before in Ecclesiastes, eventually We're all going to die. And he says, just as he came from his mother's womb empty-handed, he will go to his grave empty-handed. So even if you do have money in this life, even if you do make good business ventures, even if you do have wealth and prosperity, it's still vanity. It's vanity because you could lose it. You say, well, I don't want to lose it. Well, fine, go gain it. It's still vanity because you're going to lose it anyway. like that old saying, you know, you can't take it with you. Let me pause here, by the way, to say this, that principle, this principle that we're talking about here of money being vanity, that is not license for bad stewardship of what God has blessed us with. Good stewardship of our resources is not vanity. Good stewardship of our resources is not vanity. It's obedience. This is one of those situations where, you know, two truths of Scripture can kind of serve like those bumpers that you put on the bowling alley lanes and keep your ball out of the gutter. So don't fall so far to the gutter of everything is vanity and so nothing matters. But then when that when Scripture bumps you off of that, don't fall into the other gutter of, well, I'll just do whatever I want with all my money. Right. No, we have to be good stewards with it as well. Good stewardship here is the right answer. So what is this reminding us of? It's reminding us that we will not find joy. We will not find satisfaction. We will not find contentment under the sun. The world cannot satisfy us. And it's reminding us that we don't live for this world. We look forward to the city that is to come Anytime I think about this principle, I think about what happened with the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10. When the writer tells them in verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Why is it that they were willing to give up their property and the plundering of their property? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Isn't this wonderful to know that for those of us who know Christ, this world is not all that there is, but there is something new, something better, something waiting for us, a city that we long for and that we wait for. It's easy to get bogged down in the anxieties and the stresses and the distractions of this world, but we must remember that Here where moth and rust destroy, we are strangers and aliens and sojourners passing through. And we're going somewhere better where moth and rust do not destroy. And that's so beautiful that even the streets are paved with what? With gold. We're we're worried about many times hoarding all the gold that we can here on earth. We're going to a place where there's so much of it, they pave it with the streets or they pave the streets with it. And that leads us to our final point. Lay treasures up there. That leads us to our final point. The path of contentment, the vanity of power, the vanity of money, and now the path of contentment. Behold... What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So you say, Well, hey, you've just been talking about. Not only in this chapter, but in all the previous chapters, how vain all this is, how vain pleasure is and how vain money is and how vain toil is and how vain power is. And now we come to this verse and you say, all you can do is find enjoyment in your toil under the sun. You say, how can you do that? And his answer is in the phrase, God has given this to him. This is his lot according to the sovereignty of God and by the way I love that he says here that it's good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment essentially in all of life because if we left this message with point one and two in the vanity of power and the vanity of money we'd all leave out of here with a melancholy outlook on life we're just destined to be miserable I guess that's the lot of God's people that's what most people think Christianity is it's It's a life of misery. You can't do anything you want to do. I got all this stuff my flesh wants to do and if I go join that group, I can't do any of that anymore. And so it's this life of humdrum, melancholy and misery. And the last thing we want to be when we go out of the Lord's house is a bunch of Eeyores and Debbie Downers. We want to be Christians full of joy, unshakable joy, Amen. when we leave out of here. So he tells us it's good and fitting to find joy in this life. Because these few days of your life, it is a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. But the few days that you have, God has given them to you. This is your lot. What a God-centered way of finding an outlook on all this. Rich or poor. Wealthy and prosperous, healthy or or sick, whatever comes our way in this life. God's given that to you as a gift. Essentially, he's saying, look, be faithful. Work hard as unto the Lord. Enjoy eating and drinking in your toil because that's the lot that God has given you. It's a gift. It's given to you. It's like Christmas with a big red bow. Open it up every day. And say, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then you say, Well, wait a minute. Life's hard sometimes, it's not much of a gift. It doesn't feel that way. Bad things come unexpectedly. And yeah, that's true. But do you think here he's not also talking to the man who lost everything he had in one bad venture? you think he's not talking to that guy in verse 13 and 14? Be faithful. That's the preacher's answer and enjoy what he's given you. That's your lot. Don't let the thought of vanity lead you down the path of thinking that God has forgotten you or God has forsaken you. No, he hasn't forgotten you and he hasn't forsaken you. He simply equipped you. So enjoy it. Why? Why can we enjoy what God has given us? Because our enjoyment of what God has given us runs through an enjoyment of and a worship of God himself. We don't enjoy, this is important to get, we don't enjoy the things of this world because of what they are. We enjoy them for the gifts that they are from the Lord. We don't enjoy the things of this world for what they are. Because if you're trying to do that, then yeah, you're going to find things that it's hard to, quote unquote, enjoy. We enjoy them for the gifts that they are before the Lord. And look, if if I give one of the kids a gift and they open it up and then they throw it in the trash, how's that going to make me feel? How's it going to make you feel? How often do we do that with the Lord? We open this gift. It's a big red bow. We woke up this morning, bright eyed and bushy tailed. This is the day that the Lord has made. And we look at this day and we say, this is junk. And we throw it in the trash bin. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. If God keeps you occupied with joy in your heart, you will not much remember the days of your life. You're gonna be too focused on worship and too focused on praise and too focused on the Lord and too focused on being content. With where you are, If you focus on this world, you're going to find yourself filled with anxiety and worry and distraction and discontentment and disappointment and vanity. But he says here, if you keep your heart occupied with joy in the Lord, you won't much remember the days of your life from one to the next. We enjoy them as gifts because we enjoy first the giver of those gifts. The preacher here is begging us, don't seek satisfaction in the cheap joys and fleeting pleasures of the world. Seek satisfaction in God alone, through Christ alone. And within that satisfaction, enjoy the gifts that he's given you. That's the call of the preacher. That's the path of contentment. Remembering that whatever we have has come from the hand of God. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it's pleasurable. And sometimes it's easy. But all of it is given you with a big red bow from the hand of God. Let's close with the words of Paul. Sometimes, many times, actually misquoted, misunderstood. He told the Philippians in Philippians 4.11, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every and every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that well-known verse. He's talking about contentment. How do you be content? Whether you have plenty or hunger or abundance or need, you do all things through him who strengthens you. Let's pray. So Father, we do pray that you would do this in our hearts, that you would help us to to be content. We know this is the work of the Spirit in us, and it's not something that we are naturally bent toward or able to do. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us to find our joy, our contentment, our hope, and our satisfaction in you alone through Christ alone. And out of that, help us to enjoy many ways that you bless us each and every day and help us to see even the moments of pain and even the moments of heartache. Help us even to see these moments as little gifts of grace that you give to us. And help us to continue, as we've said, to be faithful to you and to hold on to you In prosperity, in poverty, in plenty, and in hunger, in abundance, or in need. Because we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We ask this in his name. Amen.